You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. few weeks, we have been looking at the Gospel of John in an attempt to better understand both who Jesus is and what Jesus has to offer us. And throughout this journey, if you remember, Jesus has repeatedly offered one thing, life, specifically eternal life. And here's the thing, throughout this entire journey, I've been quite unrelenting and pushing against the idea that eternal life is merely about what happens to you when you die. And that's because Jesus is pretty unrelenting. The way Jesus continues to talk about eternal life is eternal life is something to be experienced today, something to be grasped now. See, when Jesus speaks of eternal life, the predominant way Jesus speaks of eternal life is he's addressing that feeling each of us have deep down between the disconnect of our day-to-day, everyday existence And that life we know we were created for. That life we long for. He's addressing that unsettled longing inside all of our hearts. That is the predominant way Jesus speaks of eternal life. He says it is available to be experienced now. Jesus desires to see you flourish today. But that doesn't mean that's the only way Jesus speaks of eternal life. There is absolutely a dimension to eternal life that covers what happens after death. A dimension of eternal life that speaks to a reality that continues beyond the grave. In other words, there is more to life than this, Jesus expresses. And it's not just what we experience now. It's what we will continue to experience beyond the grave. This morning, we're going to spend the entire time talking about that aspect of eternal life. But that also means we're going to spend the entire morning talking about everybody's favorite subject, death. So yeah, that'll be fun. Now to do this, we're going to look at Jesus' last and perhaps his greatest, at least his greatest well-known miracle, and that is the raising of Lazarus. If you haven't read this story in a while, you are in for a treat because this story is just so evocative. It sucks you in. You can't help but relate to the characters and at the same time get caught up in what's happening. Through this story as well, Jesus reveals some profound truths about who he is, profound truths that have the potential to radically impact our day-to-day lives but also have the ability to radically impact our death. So this morning, that's what we're going to look at. And so I invite you, please open with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You can do that either by flipping it up in your phone through the app or by pulling out the pew Bibles in front of you. Again, that's John chapter 11. We're not going to be reading the entire thing. We're only going to be reading a chunk of the gospels today, a chunk of this passage today. But I still invite you to have it open so you can look at it. Now, without going into a whole lot of depth on this, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, like if you started in chapter 1 and you read all the way through, you're going to notice that chapters 11 and 12 form a huge pivot point in this Gospel. Everything shifts 
from this moment forward. See, up until this point, Jesus has primarily been doing a public ministry of healing and teaching people. But starting in chapters 11 and 12, everything begins to shift. And instead of it being about his miracles, instead of it being about his teachings, it's all about his preparation for the cross. In fact, time also has this incredible way of slowing down drastically in the gospel. If you're reading it, the first 11 chapters cover something like two and a half years. And then from chapter 13 on, it's 24 hours. I mean, time just comes to a grinding halt at this point. Now, if you open up your Bibles and you start looking at chapter 11, you're going to realize at the beginning, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. Um, apparently, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, send word for Jesus in hopes that Jesus would come and you know, heal their brother, just as he has done countless times over the last two years. But Jesus does something very odd when he hears Mary and Martha's request. Instead of rushing to Lazarus's aid, he hangs out for a couple days. He, he kind of waits. He just hangs there. And you go, what is up with this? See, on one level, you could interpret this as saying that Jesus didn't really understand the severity of Lazarus's problem, but that doesn't seem to fit the passage at all. I mean, in verse 14, Jesus explicitly calls out, Lazarus is dead. And then he says, but I'm going to wake him up. And when I wake him up, this goes back to verse 4, Lazarus says, I'm going to use his sickness. I'm going to use his disease to bring glory to the Father and to myself. I'm going to do something crazy through this. So buckle up. And so eventually, Jesus and his disciples, after hanging back for a couple days, make their way to the town where Lazarus is. It's a town called Bethany, and we're going to pick up reading from there. Again, I'm in John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Uh, The first few verses here simply set the scene for us. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So here's the scene. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Tons of people are grieving, tons of people are mourning with the family, and eventually Martha hears that Jesus is in town. She gets up and sprints to Jesus. This is their conversation, verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. To which Martha responded, Lord, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. If you're just looking at this exchange between Martha and Jesus, I mean, you have to recognize there's some similarities, in fact, between the way we often encounter people who are grieving. Do you notice that? I mean, Jesus simply tries in some respects to remind her of the future hope that she has. In much the same way, when we encounter someone who grieves, we go, I know your dad is with the Lord now. They're in a better place. I know we'll see them again. We speak of the hope that we have. We remind that to each other. And and clearly, that's how Martha interprets Jesus' words. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she immediately goes to this doctrine she holds of resurrection, of a future resurrection. And she goes, Lord, I know. You're right. He will rise again on the last day. But what you need to understand, and it's going to become painfully clear in this passage, Jesus isn't talking about some future reality. 
He's talking about something that's going to happen now. And in fact, that's exactly what he does with these next few verses. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? To which she says, yes, Lord, yes, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Son of God who has come into the world. Notice what he does with this. I mean, beyond the fact that this is just a beautiful statement, right? Notice what he's intentionally doing with Martha. She's caught up in some abstract futurist idea of some future resurrection that's going to occur. But notice what he does. He intentionally diverts her focus away from some future abstract idea to a present reality. Specifically, he moves her from thinking about an idea to focusing on a person. Martha, I am that resurrection you speak of. Martha, I am life. Martha, trust me. Martha, believe me. Look to me. Martha, do you understand? Martha, do you trust this? Martha, do you get this? Martha, I've got this. Martha, I've got you. Trust me. It's a profound statement. And see, here's why Jesus did this. Martha knew, or Jesus knew that in this moment, Martha didn't need a theology lecture. Martha didn't need to be reminded of some abstract doctrine in a book. Any more than when you're sick, you want somebody to throw a medical textbook at you. That's not remotely helpful. When you're sick, what do you want? A doctor. When you're being sued, you don't need a lecture on legal theory. You need a lawyer. And so it is here with Martha as she is confronted with perhaps humanity's greatest enemy. And she's terrified about it and it's wreaking havoc on her. Jesus doesn't just give her some trite doctrinal response. Oh, Martha, here's a future reality. No, no, he completely shifts her focus. Martha, look at me. Martha, trust me me. Look here. Look here. Not there. Here. And then he goes on. And he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he makes this statement, anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I mean, look, you can't help as you read this go, oh, it's such quintessential Jesus. You read it and you go, wait, what? What is he getting at in the midst of this? How do I engage this? How do I understand this? Where is he going with this? You, you'll live and you'll die and you'll never die. How, what? Well, clearly Jesus is not speaking of physical death, right? And we know he's not speaking of physical death because literally everybody in this book dies. Even Jesus. Everyone experiences physical death. So he's not speaking of physical death. Rather, what he's talking about is even if you physically die, you will continue to live. There is more to life than death. There is more to life than this. There is a reality that exists beyond the grave. The grave is not the end. It's just merely a bump along the road, if you want to view it that way. But it just continues on. That is part of the life, he says, I offer you today. is a life that doesn't cease, a life that continues. But more importantly, or just as importantly, he also wants to make it clear, this life that's available to you, 
You don't have to wait to die to get it. It's available to be experienced today. You can grab hold of it now. So there's these two poles. He's basically saying, Martha, you can have hope. Yes, hope for the future. Hope that there is something beyond the grave. But you can also have hope today. You can know that there's a reality that exists that you can experience that is far beyond anything else outside of your power. But again, Martha, it's not about a doctrine. This isn't about a theology. It's about me. Trust me. It's relational. It's personal. Trust me. Follow me. Look at me. This is why he asks her, Martha, do you believe this? Martha, do you trust me? Are you willing to move away from the abstract ideas of life after death and simply look at me? Remember my character. Remember what I have done for you. Remember who I am and who I have proved myself to be. And at the end of the day, if you look at me, are you willing to say, you don't have to have everything figured out, but Jesus, I trust you. And look at her response. Yes, yes, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the Son of God who has come into the world. See, in this very moment, Martha doesn't have everything figured out. In fact, as we keep reading, we're going to see in a few moments, Martha has a moment of incredible doubt where she pulls her attention away from Jesus and things get a little rocky for her and Jesus has to reel her back in. But in this moment, as he draws her attention to him and she says, he says, look at me, Martha, you know me. Martha, you remember me. You know my character. You know what I've done. Martha, do you trust me? Yeah, I do. See, notice for Martha, and I just want you to consider this, trusting Jesus is rather intellectual. I mean, I don't know if you caught this. I mean, consider her interactions with Jesus from the very beginning. When she runs up, she throws herself at the ground and basically says, Jesus, if you would have been here, I know everything would have been better. And then they go into this conversation about doctrine. Well, there's this future resurrection and so on and so forth, whatever it is. And she constantly is speaking out her faith. For her, it's intellectual. And again, even the way Jesus engages her, he's not necessarily emotional in this response, but again, he's trying to communicate to her, okay, Martha, I'm going to shift your mindset. It's not about a doctrine. It's about me. All of this is intellectual. Even her response, yes, Lord, I believe, is again, she is declaring and speaking her faith. For her, faith isn't about understanding everything. But for her, it is an intellectual understanding of being able to take her mind and shift her focus to solely being about Jesus, taking everything she knows to be true of him and allowing that to shape her formula, her thoughts, and say, I'm going with that. And for many of you, trusting Jesus is going to look more like this. For many of you, trusting Jesus is an intellectual exercise. For many of you, it's going to involve you taking what you have learned, taking the past experiences you have had, and being able to sit in this pool of experience and knowledge. And when you face this terrible situation, or you hear Jesus speak into your life, and be able to pull back on that and go, I don't have everything figured out. I don't know it all. But at the end of the day, I'm going to take what I know to be true, Lord. I'm just going to cling to you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to go. So for some of you, trusting Jesus is an intellectual exercise. But 
It's not solely an intellectual exercise. That's not the only way to trust Jesus. All of us trust Jesus in different ways. And in fact, in this story, Martha is going to lead us to her sister Mary. And as you're going to see, for Mary, trusting Jesus is far more emotional. Look with me at verse 28 here. The, The scene is about to shift. After she said this, Martha went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So again, the scene is shifting here. It was about Martha, now Mary enters the scene and Martha fades to the background. And as Mary enters the scene, we're going to discover that she is flanked by a ton of mourners, people who are watching her. And as we're going to continue to watch, Mary just loses it in front of Jesus. She totally breaks. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. At this, Jesus wept. I want you to look at verse 33 here. When Jesus saw her weeping, you need to understand this word weeping isn't describing just a few tears. She's not just whimpering. The word to describe this is klio in Greek. And klio refers to this loud, gut-wrenching, snot-dripping-down-the-face wail. It's just consuming, and you're incontrollable with it. In other words, she loses it. She breaks. And when she breaks, the people who come with her see her in this state, and they break as well. Look, I don't know if you've ever been in this state where you've ever been around a person who has completely broken like this. But if you have, you know that when this happens, the entire air, the entire dynamics of the room around this person, everything shifts. Everything. The emotions are palpable. You can literally feel them. And you cannot help but get caught up in them. The emotions and the pain are so intoxicating. It infects everybody around you. And that's exactly what happens. Mary is broken. And as she breaks, as she pours her heart out, the mourners around her break as well. In fact, this is so intoxicating. Jesus himself is caught up in this. Jesus sees his friend who is ravaged by the effects of death. And it says he was deeply moved in his spirit. And then we're given this terrible translation, and he was troubled. I say troubled because here's the thing, it makes Jesus sound wimpy. It makes Jesus sound like, oh man, I'm so sad. Martha, I'm I'm sorry. Or Mary, I'm sorry you're suffering. Here's the thing, Jesus isn't just sad. Jesus isn't just hurting. He isn't just sharing a few tears. Jesus is angry. This word here for troubled is actually the exact same word used to describe a war horse's snort. You know what I mean? 
that. <laughs> I can't do it. I tried all week getting it. <laughs> Couldn't get there. Tried as much as I could. That snort, right? That image, you can all picture it. And when that image is described idiomatically of a person, it always refers to some sort of deep anger or indignation. The sense here is this. Jesus is confronted by the brutality of death that is affecting those he loves most. And he's not just shedding a few tears. He's not just whimpering. Jesus is angry at the injustice these people are feeling. The best analogy I can come up with for this is this. Imagine your kid comes home today or from school tomorrow, and tells you of a terrible injustice that occurred to them. Imagine they walk in and tell you that another, another student's mom walked into the room and accused them of something they never did in front of all their friends, and then to top it off, they slapped them in front of all their friends and shamed them. When your kid comes home and tells you this story, you don't just get sad. You don't just feel bad for your child. You snort like a war horse, and you demand to know, who did this to you? Where are they? Let me at them. This is exactly what Jesus does. Look at verse 34. He's filled with this sense of deep, righteous indignation at the pain felt by his loved friends. And he demands to know, who did this? Where is he? Let me at him. Where have you laid him? And so when they finally take him to this space, it's again this same emotion that then leads Jesus to weep. Jesus breaks. He doesn't hold back. Guys, it's heartbreaking and gut-wrenching watching those you love suffer. Jesus proves this too. Jesus breaks in the midst of the pain and the agony that his friends are feeling because of the effects of death. Jesus loses it. But I want you to understand, Jesus isn't crying because he doesn't know the income, the outcome. Jesus has already declared clear as day he plans to wake Lazarus up. He knows full well Rather, the reason Jesus is crying, the reason Jesus feels this sense of indignation is because the simple reality, death is brutal. Death is horrible. Look, we try so often to cover over death. We try to make it pretty, right? We try to smooth it out like it's not that bad. And so we say phrases like, your loved one has passed. They are no longer with us. But the truth is, and I know we got some doctors in the room, you can attest to this probably better than anybody else. Death is brutal. If you've ever had to listen to the crackle, if you've ever felt the skin, it's like a firm putty. If you've ever smelled the smells, let alone just sat and watched your loved one as they simply gasped for air, there is nothing remotely pretty about death. It's horrifying. Frankly, it's, it's downright terrifying. See, death, for what it is, if you strip it down for anything else, it reveals the true fragility of humanity. 
it reveals the pureness of our impotence. In, in every other situation we find ourselves in life, I mean, it doesn't matter how bad the situation is, we constantly feel like at least through some effort of our own, we can influence our circumstances. But not so with death. In death, it's a complete free fall. You can't do anything to affect the outcome. You are completely powerless. You're completely exposed. You are completely at the mercy of this great power. Apart from Jesus, death is terrifying. You have absolutely nothing to grab onto. Don't miss that. Also, don't miss, though, that death was never part of the plan. God didn't sit down at the creation of the universe and go, I know, I'm going to create people in my image, and then I'm going to cause them to suffer. I'm going to cause them to die. Horrible deaths. No, that wasn't the plan. God never intended this for us. And in fact, we know this. We feel this. Anytime someone dies, it's like someone has literally been ripped out of your life. There's a part of you that's missing, a part of you that no words, no amount of time will ever fully cover, will ever fully heal. Yes, time will at some point make it so the wound doesn't hurt as much, but there's still this hole in your life. There's still this gap that exists in your life, and there is nothing you can do to fix it. Nothing. Even when an older person dies, we still, in that space, go, yeah, they lived a good old life, but still we sad. We're grieving. We know this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And we weep. Look, not all of you in this room have ever experienced death yet, but I don't think it's difficult for you to understand or fathom how jarring, how terrifying, how painful of a reality death is. By weeping alongside Mary and Martha, Jesus shows the fullness of his humanity, though. Do you catch this? Jesus gets it. He understands the pain of death. This isn't an abstract idea for Jesus. He can fully empathize, and so he cries. Guys, death sucks. I think we just call it out. It's probably the understatement of the century. And just because, this is something else I want to call your attention to, just because we have the hope of resurrection, just because as Christians we know this isn't the end of the story, that shouldn't mitigate the pain of death. Jesus gives us permission to grieve, permission to hurt, to be confronted with the full reality and brokenness of the world around us. Martha is a beautiful example of this, and Jesus' response to her says, this is exactly what we should be doing. See, whereas for Martha... Trusting Jesus was more of an intellectual experience. Do you notice for Mary, it's more emotional? Mary wails, she cries, she protests. But at the end of the day, Mary isn't just flailing against the wind. She's intentionally directing her emotion, her pain, at the feet of Jesus. She brings it back to him. She trusts him with the deepest feelings that she possesses. 
and she lays it there. A good example of this is your kid that finally comes to you and breaks, just collapses into your arms and sobs. Not running from you, not protesting, not arguing, but finally surrendering to you. Martha's a beautiful example that sometimes, for us, trusting Jesus is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with him. Showing him those parts of ourself that are just ugly, gut-wrenching, snot dripping down the face, loud, disgusting, bring it to him. But that's not the only ways, again, that people trust Jesus. There's, there's a whole spectrum. There's no like one way to trust Jesus, as we've seen. Sometimes it's intellectual, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's a mix of the two. There's a ton of different ways. The one thing that becomes clear from both Mary and Martha, though, in this story, don't miss this, is that both of them direct their attentions to the person rather than the idea. Both Mary and Martha, at the end of the day, encounter Jesus himself. They aren't just going to some abstract idea of who Jesus said he was or what Jesus was capable of doing. They both engage the man. They consider and are mindful of who he is, what he has to offer, his character, what he has proven himself to do. And they fall at his feet. Guys, being a Christian, trusting Jesus in whatever life throws at us isn't, doesn't mean you're always going to have the answers. But as Mary and Martha say, it's taking the understanding of who we have of Jesus, what we know to be true of him, his character, who he has revealed himself to be, and taking our hopes, taking our desires, taking our pains, taking our frustrations, and simply directing them to him. and Saying, Lord, I, I need you to help me with this. Enter into this space with me. The other profound truth I want to look at with you today is this. Yeah, death sucks. Yeah, death was not in the plan of God. But death doesn't get the last word. Look at the rest of this story. Verse 38. Jesus once more was deeply moved when he came to the tomb. The tomb was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha takes her focus off Jesus, and she's overcome by these intellectual doubts. She says, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. And look what Jesus does. He refocuses her. Martha, I get it, but I need you here. Look me in the eyes. Remember, Martha, trust me. I've got this. I've got you. When Jesus finally makes his way to the tomb, he commands the stone to be rolled away. But Martha eventually cries out again, as we saw. After this, Jesus then lifts his arms up in prayer. And he has kind of a funky prayer. And I say funky because he doesn't really ask for anything. Rather, he says, Lord, I'm going to pray because I want other people to know you answer my prayers. It's this weird prayer. Look at what he says. So the uh, next, yeah. So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father... I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man then came out, his hands, his feet, wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, 
take off the grave clothes and let him go. So after praying, Jesus then stands square. Again, not in the text, but the way I interpret the thing. Facing the tomb dead on. And with a loud voice, not a whimper, not even just a stern warning. The word here describes a shout of raw authority. Jesus demands, Lazarus, out now! Again, poor translation. Lazarus, out now, and then it happens. Did you catch this? I mean, I don't know what this would have been like. I don't know how long this would have taken, but I imagine the seconds began to feel like minutes. Everyone's eyes shift from Jesus to the tomb. Everyone grows deathly silent, right? You could hear a pin drop. And then all of a sudden you see a hand. And then you see a foot. And then out of the shadows comes Lazarus in his his burial suit for all to see. I mean, come on. How great is this story? I told you, it just sucks you in. And you would think as you read this story, everybody who sees this, everybody who sees this miracle would finally get it. They would finally be like, all right, Jesus, we believe. What do you got? That's not what happens. As you keep reading into chapters 11 and 12, I told you, remember, the whole book pivots. This is the last great miracle of Jesus. This is the end of his public ministry. He's no longer going to heal people. Rather, the whole focus shifts to the cross. See, the death of Lazarus, we come to discover, merely foreshadows the far greater miracle to come, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that makes one thing abundantly clear. Jesus gives life by giving his life. Jesus doesn't hold back, and the reason we live, the reason we have hope, the reason we can experience a tomorrow is because he suffered and died for you, for me, for this whole world. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus proves he has complete and total mastery over death. That Lazarus wasn't a one-time occurrence. It wasn't a one-off And therefore, the life he offers Lazarus, the life he offers Mary, Martha, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the blind man, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's the same life he offers to you and me today. A life not built on empty promises or empty words, but a life built on a man of action. And so as we approach death, we don't have to go hopeless. We don't have to go afraid. Because we don't cling to some abstract idea. We don't even cling to some fancy writing in a book. We cling to a historical reality. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave, and Jesus declared that all who trust in him, all who cling to him, all who fixate on him, will live as well. Even if they die they will live, and if 
they die, they, or even if they believe in me, they will never die. So church, today, I just close with this. Don't cling to a book. Don't even cling to doctrine. Instead, I invite you, cling to the one who calls to you. The one who says, trust me. The one who says, follow me. The one who says, fixate on me. And know that whatever life throws your way, regardless of whatever challenge you come across, on this side of the grave or at the grave, you can take hope. Because as Jesus himself makes abundantly clear, I've got this. And I've got you. Take hold of him today. And as you do, watch him transform your life and transform your death. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for who you are. Lord, you are not a God who's simply up in heaven, distant and removed from us, but you are a God who has drawn near to us through your infinite mercy and grace. You have sent your Son to love us. And because your Son has lived among us, because your Son was fully human, he can empathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our pain. We know we do not grieve alone in silence. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are truly hurting. My brothers and sisters who are continuing to reel from terrible losses in their life. I know it's so easy for us as humans to just forget the events and move on like it never happened, but I also know there's people in this room who continue to live in this present struggle and this present reality of the pain due to a loss of a loved one. Lord, I pray that you, by the infinite grace of your Holy Spirit, would draw those people to yourself and allow them to break as Mary broke. To surrender to you and experience your love wrapping them up. Lord, may you truly be the safe space that allows them to heal. At the same time, I recognize my brothers and sisters in this room are struggling with intellectual doubts who struggle in the face of decisions at work, decisions in their marriage, decisions to whatever... Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would allow us to be mindful of who you are. That we would be so intoxicated by our awareness of you that the way we live, the hope we have, would truly be infectious. Just as the pain and brokenness that can often be infectious, Lord, I pray that our hope would be infectious. And that as we go to our neighbors, as we go to our workplaces, as we go into our homes... Lord, that we would be filled with such hope and our brothers and sisters and our friends and our families and our neighbors would feel the exact same way. Lord, may you change this world by allowing us to truly understand who you are and what you have to offer. In Jesus' name.